Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, February 23rd. Today we have an interview with Ari Hughes. Uh, Fun discussion. We talk Ferrari. We talk Etsy. Um, Mm -hmm. I won't give too many spoilers uh, because we'll talk about it in a little bit. But uh, we also have our own stories for the week, which were voted on on Twitter. Uh, So I'm going to be talking Michael Burry's 13F. Um, It's the, the... company is Scion Capital Management, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's always interesting because last year he, he had GameStop and we gave him a lot of slack for that. <laughs> he, so. he called, uh, he did call GameStop. Oh yeah, we did. We were pretty bearish on that, right? Yeah, huh? so we're not going to talk about that, but uh, <laughs> what's your story for the uh, I'm going to do a state of the SPAC market, so it's all everyone can really talk about. Going to go through some numbers, who's investing, who's in it, what do we think about it, and that's really it. Okay, and then as always, we have current state of FinTwit. Uh, we have hot water, buy, sell, hold, and our anecdotal evidence. Oh, but before we get started, word from our partners, our friends, Seven Invest. Yes. Uh, use our code CCM. Less than ten days till the new picks. March picks are coming out. March first. Uh, you know, we, they, we always get these emails whenever someone signs up, and we are becoming much better salesmen every time because Perfect. we're getting more and more. Uh, well, more and more signups. So. Well, the Seven Investing team. Themselves themselves because okay. their perform their performance is <laughs> which fantastic. is a sales in and of itself. Yeah, so uh, seven investing guys, if you're listening, hope you laughed at that one. But yeah, the uh, I don't know. Use code CCM, get ten bucks off. I mean, what else? What okay. else do you need? No, that's it. All right, here you go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. I'm going to kick things off. We're talking Michael Burry's 13F. So, little anecdote. Last year, uh, I think we did this uh, basically the exact same thing. We go through his 13F. We talk about the top 10 holdings, and one of those was GameStop, and we totally made fun of it. We called it the blockbuster of gaming. Yeah. Uh, so, shame on us. So, Gabe Plotkin, you were listening. Sorry for running your fun, but no. Yeah, uh, but... We all know how that went, and so I'm going to go through his top 10 holdings, uh, and this is excluding his call option value because the top 10 holding like value uh, for uh, the nominal for whatever right. The, so what's whatever he's averaging was with it. like call options on Citigroup, call options on Pfizer, and call options on Kraft Heinz. So he's kind of doing some smaller bets, but just the actual shares that he's betting on because it's right. like multiplying by whatever. Um, do you want to explain who he is, though? Because I don't know if everyone knows and kind of what he's... Yeah, if you don't know, he is like probably one of the most criticized at times, but also he's been the most right uh, fund managers, uh, maybe ever. But he uh, is most well-known for the movie The Big Short. He's played by Christian Bale, um, and he sort of called the real estate bubble. And I think he may have... Did he invent the credit default swap? Potentially. That could have been faked for the movie, but that's that's potential. Um, he called GameStop. He didn't call the bubble thing with the whole traders on Robinhood. Um, and now he's calling uh, 
Tesla for being a bear on that, and he's also calling for hyperinflation, which I guess we'll talk later in the yeah. show a bit, although that's out of our expertise. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. Uh, but he's really a deep value guy. So his number one holding is Lumen Technologies. Um, just so you know, we are in Seattle, and one yeah. of the stadiums, the, the Seahawks stadium, was just renamed Lumen Field. And it used to be called CenturyLink. I didn't put the two together, but Lumen Field is just CenturyLink rebranded. Yeah. Uh, so it's a telecom. Um, no, yeah, that's their. That's his number one holding. The stadium. The stadium name never gives me. It kind of. I'm like. It's always a red flag. Yeah. Why are you spending that money? But, yeah. Not to mention that it feels like they always end up not doing that well. Mm-hmm. Um, but second largest holding is Distribution Now. Um, it's an energy and industrial solution, so I think they operate oil rigs. Oh, um, maybe in Texas? That could be. Yeah, well, they are headquartered in Texas. And then RPT Realty is, is third. It, they are the owner of shopping centers, um, sort of just a real estate play. Like Some of these will probably not be that interesting because they're deep value and he just thinks they're undervalued and he can get value for it. But uh, his first, fourth is Unity Group, another REIT. Um, Fifth is Western Digital, which is actually a hard drive manufacturer. And then sixth is Allstate. Uh, most people know what they do, but their insurance. The seventh is Curate Retail. Shout out to Bill Brewster, our friend. Um, but they are the owner of seven leading retail brands. Um, he's actually been selling Curate, if I'm not mistaken. So. Cur- uh, Burry? Yeah. Yeah, the... Yeah, it's, 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 a, well, it's a weird. So. It's a weird. Um, it was a weird special situation, kind of, and it's yeah, it's done really well. So okay, and I think John Malone might be the CEO. No, uh, I think it's part of his empire, but we are not experts on that little Liberty Media type thing. So. Okay, and then uh, number eight is Wells Fargo. A little controversial because everyone knows they've had a rough go of it the last few years. A lot of value investors have tried their hand with Wells Fargo, and it has not turned out well. Um, and then ninth is Discovery, which uh, is like Discovery Channel, Food Network, stuff like that. They own a bunch of different TV channels and brands. They've also recently launched Discovery Plus, which is sort of their uh, smart TV app. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Geo Group is the tenth one. That's another REIT that owns rehab centers for people in custody. Yeah, this was the one that could really get the clickbait headlines going because yeah. they're like Michael Berry owns this prison or you know no, something no. like that. That's not even the one. Oh, that one's that for one? people in custody, but then oh. he also owns Core Civic, which was not in his top 10 holdings. That is literally private prisons and detention centers. Ah, well, yeah, he's really affecting how they do business. But I have, th- yeah, and then another one is Molson Coors, parent company of Coors Beer, and then Ingalls Markets, which is a supermarket chain based in North Carolina. Um, <laughs> Such a boring portfolio, but you got to love it. I guess this, qu- so he is... Uh, a little outspoken politically as well uh, on Twitter at least and he's been somewhat controversial for that so do you think that his portfolio has any has any reflection of his political views mm, because that's what a lot not. of people are sort of headlining with the private prisons no, and detention is, centers that is true but I, I I don't think so I don't think so either I mean the portfolio doesn't reflect that He's always um, been pretty much as unemotional of an investor as you can be. Yeah. Looking back, though, Discovery looks pretty smart. They launched Discovery Plus. People are a little wary on it, but it's done really well. Hmm. Um, people thought Netflix could just kill them, but they kind of got those brands, you know, HGTV, Discovery, all the, yeah. all, all the other ones. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind watching a little Discovery Channel. The, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, it's in my most ultra-bored phases, but yeah. Um, 
Do any of the companies interest you at all, other than Discovery? I mean, no. <laughs> no. I got to say no. Uh, it seems like Wells Fargo. I can understand what he's doing with Wells Fargo. What about you Mol- understand Molson, Molson Coors? Coors. You can understand what he, you know what he's doing there. I'm assuming these are both deep value plays. People think that for whatever reason the companies will not succeed in the future, and that's where some guys like him like to like to play. Um, the top holdings, I don't know much about at all. Um, I mean, Allstate seems steady. Curate, obviously, he's done really well with that. I looked into the distribution now. Was kind of interested, and then I realized I do not understand this business at all. We'll the business of oil rigs and how they're affected by oil prices and all that stuff. But it's also a supplier of like the equipment for it, um, mm. and it did seem. I, I'm pretty sure like the average earnings multiple on his top ten holdings was like six, I, six times. So I would not be surprised either. Yeah, if that. I mean, were he the had case. some it looks dirt like cheap. Yeah. I mean, that's just not the type of companies we like to invest in. I respect what he's doing. It's kind of interesting to see what he's doing um, because it's always a thing. Like last year with GameStop, we were like, eh, why, why GameStop is trading at three times earnings? That doesn't make sense. But the company's totally failing. But the thing is, but they've really that, turned it around. So. Isn't that always how it goes, though? It feels like every single time people are calling him an idiot. Mm-hmm. They're like, and, and I saw it this time around again as well. People were like, Lumen Technologies is such a bad business. Why would you yeah. want to own that? And then he's constantly right. And so, I, I I don't know. Do you think he's still underappreciated as an investor? Yeah, it looks, it feels like deep value guys will always be underappreciated because the story doesn't, it's not sexy. So yeah. it's like, yeah, you're investing in Lumen Technologies. You're making a lot of money or whatever, GameStop. But it's still not a great business. You're kind of like, all right, I mean, cool. Like, people don't get excited by that. Um, And it really isn't, like, I feel like most people that invest don't have the psychological makeup to do this deep value stuff where, you know, you can make just as much money. But if it doesn't fit kind of how you operate, then you're not going to appreciate it. Like, even for us, it, it really doesn't fit how we operate, at least right now. Deep value, um, deep value is a whole other world. There's valuation mm-hmm. disciplined, and then there's deep value. Yeah, it's a whole different like, thing. You're, I mean, it's really cigar butts, it feels like. You're not buying it because it's going to grow exponentially. But what I can get around, yeah, that, that makes sense. And what I can get around, though, is that people have been saying deep value is dead for years, and it seems like it's totally been buried. Everyone's quitting deep value, and that probably means it's going to do quite well. Yeah. Um, in aggregate uh, but again you have to be good at it to do well and have that mindset and know when you're going to invest in that cigar butt and when you're going to sell because in reality with him he's a lot more active Yeah. and that sell discipline and philosophy it comes into play it's it's a lot more important to your um, portfolio yeah What did, I mean I guess you don't know about Ingalls markets but that one was kind of interesting it feels I like I like retail so Maybe we'll check that one out. That one's yeah. in our circle of competence for sure. That was definitely an interesting one. I'll let you get to your story, though. We're talking SPACs, which yes, very I exciting. was frustrated when you threw this out <laughs> in the Twitter poll because I feel like we talk about SPACs every week. Well, so. the listeners wanted it, so we'll see. Okay. Uh, but I, I got some interesting things here. Not like Everyone knows what SPACs are now, so I'm not going to go into the structure. But if you really thought the SPAC market couldn't get any bigger or weirder, it has. So... Last week, 16 blank check companies raised $3.4 billion. And you can really think, like, when they're investing, they're not taking over a company. 
So this $3.4 billion is probably going to go into market capitalizations of like $30 billion or $20 billion. And then when you tab on that all the SPACs just double in value, that's just a lot of market value that people are getting. Uh, There was 45 SPACs submitted last week for filing. So we're at a rate of 45 SPACs committed a week. That is just insane. We're seeing Alex Rodriguez, Shaq, Colin Kaepernick, all sponsoring and raising SPACs. People that are not really business. I mean, you could argue that Shaq and and A-Rod, yeah, they're great marketers for some of their businesses. But again, they're not investors. Uh, They're sponsoring these SPACs. We've even seen someone that is a really, you know, notable investor, Seth Klarman. Has brought bought SPACs. I think he has six bets worth upwards of two hundred million dollars. So not big for that portfolio, but still but sizable. I mean, is he sponsoring those? Because I know he's not sponsoring them. He's investing. In there are certain invest investors that are like arbitraging it. Like there, yeah. There's like bad mispricings on some, and they have funds kind of built around that. Is that more his avenue, or is I, it- I I do not talk with him, uh, mm. and he's not very public. So <laughs> as you you know, as you knew, Ryan, but they. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's what he's doing. I mean, he's kind of the arbitrage king in a way. So, you know, yeah, it seems like that's what he's doing. But the thing is with these, like you have the high current upside where basically every SPAC deal that goes through now on the announcement, it goes to 20 uh, and basically doubles in value. And then there's really low downside on the pre-merger part because you can always exchange your money and get it back. So it's, Again, you could go through the acquisition and then the stock could totally collapse. That's a risk. But right now, I mean, you are playing with fire and it's not a way we like to invest. But you can see where people are coming at it where you invest the money in. You can always exchange it back if a deal doesn't go through. But if it does go through and right now, when it, what happens? You know, you announce a deal with some EV company. The stock price goes to so, twenty. If sorry. it if it collapses before the deal goes through, you can always exchange it for your ten dollars back. Okay, so what if you throw ten dollars on a spec and you don't like the company that they choose to merge or sponsor? You get the ten. Yeah, you can exchange the ten dollars back. I mean, it's just opportunity cost, you know. But huh. So it makes sense that people are doing this, uh, but. It obviously, there's too much money sloshing around for so many of these pre-revenue companies. There's only so many companies in the market. Uh, I guess another discussion I wanted to have, probably the second half of this, is what do you think some potential outcomes and end to the SPAC boom can be? I kind of see it as some parts of it feel similar to the South Sea bubble where there's just investors kind of tossing around like, look, we have this idea, give us money. What do you think? Yeah, some of the, well, the first things first is, the downsides of SPACs are becoming revealed, which is the poor due diligence. Yeah. Um, and we saw that with Clover Health. We saw that with Trevor Milton. I'm sure there have yeah. been some other ones. Um, if, I don't know. I have hesitation with SPACs because peop- it, it seems like private companies trying to find their way out. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like, this is my release. This is my exit. I can basically dump my shares to the public and then I don't have to deal with it anymore. Yeah. And I can understand the arbitrage stuff for short-term people that like to play with that. There's probably a ton. I mean, I know, gosh, I forget his name. I think it's Andrew Walker who has, um, I think it he is. does another. Yeah. So he was talking about the Pershing square. Uh, so there are, as Bill Ackman's fund is a publicly traded hedge fund and they trade at a discount to NAV, but then there's a way you can play with options. He explains it's a little complicated where, the SPAC they have uh, 
trades at a premium to NAV, so it's, or not NAV, yeah. to the to the you know ten dollars or or actually no, they were, they were twenty dollars price on the SPAC for the merger, but it trades at a premium to that. There was a way that you could arbitrage that that seemed very interesting. So you can see what people are doing there. But and he was on Toby's podcast talking about that. Yeah, yeah the acquirers podcast. The uh, that I mean that stuff makes sense, but I think in aggregate, like. The highest likelihood is that a lot of the high the money here, a high percentage of the money that gets put into this is just returned because there's not enough deals out there. How long would you have to wait after a company? So if a company goes public through a SPAC, how long would you have to wait before it would interest you in investing? Uh, I'll just get the 10K out. Yeah, give it a few years. Or not, sorry, not a, you know, One year. get some filings out. Once there's a 10K out? Yeah. But that's the thing with the SPACs and pre-merger SPACs is when they do it, uh, you can wait like two years and never have a deal go through. So you might just be sitting on dead money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And then, what, you just get your $10 back at no then, interest? No. Uh, you probably are in money market funds, but yeah. But I, I mean, you know, the thing that concerns me is that, Okay, there's a 100% outcome that these sponsors, banks, and Jamath, and I guess other people, are going to be richer because of the sponsor fees they get and the warrants they get at a discount. Yeah. But doesn't that incentivize the managers of the SPACs that are trying to do the deals? Doesn't that incentivize them to do deals even if it's not in the best interest of the shareholders because they're getting that money? They could say they're not. Yeah. They can say they're doing all the due diligence and they're, you know, it Coming out at a good valuation, yeah. it's a high growth company, but the incentive is there to make deals happen. It encourages activity for sure. It's like brokers in the eighties. Mm-hmm. You know, brokers now. If you're getting paid for activity, it's usually a bad sign. Yeah. Okay. Last question on this: How likely is it in aggregate that the 2020 2021 SPAC classes underperform the market? It's a loaded question because I'm kind of telling you what to answer, but I kind of know your answer. But what do you think? Gosh, did someone mention this? Who mentions? I felt like there was an investor that said something. I think Tom Gardner from the Molly Fool on Twitter. He's like most of these spacs will underperform. Ninety percent of the spacs will do poorly. Yep. Yeah, and you I could say I'm him. not. I am not a huge spac fan. So. I'd say I'm in the exact same camp as him. In aggregate, we're, some a, of these we're a direct listing team. <laughs> yeah, that's, we like to, that's our preference. That's why I respect Roblox. Uh, but yeah, I don't know the. Yeah, I mean, it seems like an aggregate post deal, when all things are said and done, these are going to do pretty poorly. Doesn't mean some of them won't do well. I know we talked with Brad the other week about SoFi. That's interesting. Good. Co- I mean, it seems like a solid company. Yeah, but, but it's, yeah. now I'm throwing a red flag on all things Chamath, though. That's true. No, I agree. Because, I agree. Because, I mean, that Clover Health stuff was damning. Like, there's... <laughs> I, I oh, mean, yeah. I mean, that seems like a bad business for sure, but yeah. Just to stay careful out there, everyone. Don't. I mean, some yeah. of these specs, like we saw, like Lucid Motors and that other CCIV or whatever. I mean, it was just exploding in value. Just be patient. You don't need to make all your money in one. You don't need to have 100% returns in a week. You know. That's the other thing that I keep seeing is okay. If you're, I've had questions about like, well, are you like looking at EVs and stuff like that? And it's like, no. No. If people are spacking just. Like if they're spacking just to get public money because there's money flowing towards EVs, that's a bad sign. And it's good for the business raising capital. It'll be good for the consumer because some of these companies will produce some good technology. But maybe we just bad for investors. I wonder how many of these EV companies were started after EV started. <laughs> that's that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. The uh, well, there's FOMO there on the EV side, but there's FOMO with investors too. We you gotta resist that FOMO. But 
Okay, uh, wait, state of the FinTwit or current state of FinTwit? Yeah, I've got the uh, I've got some stuff from the GameStop hearing. I was gonna ask biggest takeaway, funniest moments. So go right ahead. That was uh, one of mine. I have a quote from the hearing. One of the members of the House Committee of Financial Services, which was basically all the people that were asking the questions, asked Keith Gill. Um, he said, oh "God, Keith Gill is roaring kitty." He said, yeah. "Did you buy Game Stock because you were not aware of payment for order flow?" So let me <laughs> yeah, just. This here's what I'm picturing: is that he got like a memo with everything that happened on like a one pager, like ten minutes before the hearing. And yeah. he's like, I'm going to combine all this into one question. <laughs> yeah. Um, You're talking with the senator. The yeah. Senator. yeah. It's, like, it's not going to make any sense, but people, uh, it's going to be pointed at well, him. And he's like, no. I, he, he's like, could you ask that again? And he asked the same question. He said, he's like, no, I, don't, I bought the stock because of the fundamentals. He's like, yeah, the payment for order flow stuff, I mean, you can read Flash Boys and kind of get, like, see how it's a little bit nefarious. But, I mean, I've come around to it. Whatever, dude. They're just making the market. I don't know. If you're not an active trader, that little tiny penny they take off, it's fine. Yeah, it's I don't really care. The only thing that came away, my biggest takeaways were uh, the incompetence of the people asking the questions, A, and I think everyone's takeaway. Maybe yeah, there was a few that did well, but I think in general, that was yeah, pretty much everyone's inaccurate, takeaway. Inaccurate, yeah. And I just don't really like Vlad Tenev that much. Vlad. Also, oh, my dad said, like, he he's not into finance that much. Just kind but, of a, yeah, almost a little sideline. But he'll see the news yeah. and stuff. And he said, I thought the guy was wearing, like, a fake costume. He the said he looked was like weird. that. Uh, weird. Who's the guy? Uh, gosh, who's, like, that common soup? I don't even know what it is. Uh, I, you if were it not comes to my mind, anything. I don't think about it. Vlad had a weird suit on, that's for sure. He was sitting there. Ken Griffin looked like like uh, a costume. Ken Griffin looked like the the president from the Hunger Games, kind of like, you know. Gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on this guy's name. Yeah. I mean, Rory Kinney came out on top for sure. Funniest thing, I think, was the Bloomberg how do you do kids thing where they were explaining what the the Reddit terms were. Oh, yeah. Where it was like stonks, and then it was underlines only go up, they say. And then it was like tendies, chicken tenders, a.k.a. profits. (laughs) I was just (laughs) laughing so hard. Uh, yeah, the Bloomberg, the, the Bloomberg is really, uh, or Bloomberg is becoming Wall Street bets. It was funny. Any, uh, any big current state of FinTwit things mm, for you? I mean, we we were asked to talk about Michael Berry's calling his shot tweet on hyperinflation. Now, if you don't know, if you're not on Twitter, Burry, the same guy, you know, who's done all these calls in the past, and I did like how he tweeted. He was like, <laughs> "I called it in '07. No one listened. Now everyone's hearing it." You'll know that I called it this time. No, yeah, it was. Like, it was like he people, was really. He was like Babe Ruth, like pointed at the, the at the center fielder, like this is going to be a home run. People, um, yeah, people were like, I think his exact tweet was, "People said I didn't warn them, and now, oh, right, right, this is proof that I'm warning you," which yeah. got me, you know, gave me the chills. Yeah, <laughs> I, and I guess people are asking about our takes on that, and I would say I don't have a take. I would say I'm I, not qualified for a take. Yeah, on the hyperinflation stuff. I mean, my mindset is just expect some inflation. If it doesn't happen, sure. If it's a little more, sure. Did but you expect read, it to uh, pick up, you know? Did you read the Semper Augustus annual letter? Yes. I'll say I skimmed some of the Berkshire stuff because I don't own Berkshire. I'm not reading 30 pages about it, and I read the, the biography. I'm not up to date on that. But did everything read, before that, the 50 or 60 pages before that, I did read. Did you read the chart 
of like the comparisons of the market now on like as a whole versus all the other peaks yeah i mean yeah it's there yeah, yeah i mean it's concerning that's why we hold cash i guess that's another thing to look at if you are interested in Burry's takes which yes. uh i mean i would i would say as a whole most of the investors that i look up to now are fearful yeah yeah oh uh yes 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 yeah i would i would agree too yeah and it's tough to keep everything in your brain because there's so many things going on where there's like the stimulus coming there's the reopening and everyone's gonna go crazy there's gonna be so many dollars sloshing around and that's gonna do good for businesses but there's a lot of negatives going on so yeah yeah, i mean just that's why you invest with the margin of safety that's why you're just be patient yeah all right uh i don't have anything else for current Um, oh i I had had some funny ish according to barry ritholtz he had a tweet that said that now 70 percent of professional investors use blogs for research and 30 percent use podcasts for research research so professional investors you're welcome (laughs) yeah yeah well that's funny that the uh the like individual stuff the, the kind of stuff that we're in is you know a lot of people actually use it okay uh, i think we're gonna hit a quick break and then we have our interview with ari hughes yeah. uh any highlights for you uh yeah i mean he's from the molly fool so that's kind of the mind you know you should yeah. expect that molly fool mindset going in uh it's definitely not a deep value play but ferrari's interesting very yeah. permanent um interesting like, thesis yeah. you you know ryan always tries to convince me about ferrari all the time or not yeah. all the time but sometimes. sometimes and then etsy has been phenomenal um Gosh, I mean, it's, the marketplace has just taken off. It's interesting. Yeah, Ari's had a good track record. I met him. I think I mentioned this on there, but I met him in my internship, and I really liked his strategy, so you guys probably will too. Uh, fun discussion overall. Here you go. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right, today we are welcomed by Ari Hughes. Ari is an analyst at The Motley Fool. I met him this summer during my time there. Um, But why don't you give us a little background? So how did you end up at The Fool? to begin with. Yeah, sure. Thank you for uh, having me on. Uh, Basically, uh, I got to the fool because I just had this, uh, you know, burning desire to be in finance or an investment related field. And I was reading a lot of finance books and starting to practice on my own. And um, before that, I was uh, basically had a career as a financial analyst um, in a business setting where you do some similar things, looking at numbers and planning but not necessarily picking stocks or looking at businesses to own. And that's where I found my passions leading me. So I had, you know, been looking for positions, hunting, um, and wasn't finding anything. And then finally there was an opening at the full. And I said, you know, these, these folks are open to, you know, career switchers or people that are passionate. So I just made it a point to put together the best application I could and um, got the opportunity that way. And it's been there ever since. Nice. And how long, how long have you been there now? Uh, so it's coming up about, it's been two years uh, so far. 
Awesome. Oh, yeah. All right. And then today we're going to be talking Etsy and Ferrari, yeah. uh, two companies that I believe that you like. I know Etsy, you had a write up on them recently. Uh, but yeah, to just start out, can you talk about, you know, explain what Etsy is and then talk about its business model a little bit? Sure. Uh, so Etsy is a marketplace for craft or unique goods. Um, and they connect the buyers and sellers of these goods. So if you want some type of odd thing, you would usually find at a craft fair. You could most likely find it on Etsy. Um, and the way Etsy makes money from this is it takes a percentage of the sale or the transaction, a little bit from the buyer and a little bit from the seller. So when that good is sold, they take a percentage of that and they also charge for transaction, the payment transaction. So the I think the total rate take rate now is like 17%, which is really good. And then uh, they also charge for some servicing fees. So if you want, if you're a seller on Etsy and you want better placement, you can pay for marketing to have better placement and some things like that to generally make your business a little bit better. Um, and the way it makes money is a marketplace makes money from what's called GMS or gross merchandise sales. And that is the value of the sales being sold over your marketplace. So if, when you think about eBay, Amazon, um, it, it's a similar business model where there's transactions being done over the marketplace and they're taking a percentage of, of that transaction. Uh, so, I'm trying to get it from the seller's perspective. If I were like artsy or something like that, I was, I don't know, uh, crafting some masks or something like that for COVID. Would I be sort of independent to Etsy or do a lot of these sellers kind of use a bunch of different services and Etsy's just one of them? Yeah. So, uh, so you, so if you're a seller, you're an independent business owner and you create, it could be paintings, jewelry, t-shirt, you know, any number of things. And the way you're using Etsy, uh, the way I consider it is you're using Etsy as a tool, right? And this is the reason I think this is a, a really exceptional business is because if you think about the model before Etsy, this is the way it worked, is you have a unique good or something you create and you would go to a local craft fair, or that's the way I think of it, right? And maybe that craft fair is just in your town or your zip code, right? So who are the people you can sell to? You're going to be able to sell to just the people in your town and just the people that attended that fair that day. When you sell on Etsy, your market automatically becomes the entire United States and other countries. It becomes anyone that visits Etsy and types in something or has interest in a similar product, you have, you now have access to that market. So the way I think of it, it gives you massive leverage to expand your small um, business. Does Etsy help at all with like logistics? So like if I, you know, if like the artist or whatever sells something, do they have to, uh, is Etsy a part of that process of getting it from the seller to the buyer at all? Um, so, so the seller still um, is responsible for mailing it, but they do have some incentives for shipping now and they're getting better. Um, and that was one of the, I don't want to call it the weaknesses, but one of the opportunities for the website uh, before. So they're doing some things to incentivize shipping because in, you know, in this day and age, people want things uh, rather quickly. So, so they don't necessarily help with logistics in a way that you may see a, 
uh, Amazon or like uh, Shopify starting to do where they have infrastructure for shipping, um, but they are getting better about it. All right. And then you talked about this a bit, but what is your thesis on Etsy? Why do you think it's a good investment? Um, I know you read, wrote something in December and um, I don't know, what, what was your thesis You know, back then? I guess that's pretty close, but. Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, this thesis is pretty much the same, but the reason I like it is uh, for for two facets, or I'll just name all the reasons I think it's a good company. So you have e-commerce tailwinds in general. Etsy will benefit from that as well. A lot of e-commerce businesses or anyone doing business online, because that's a destination where people uh, desire to get things. It's a niche offering. So I believe it currently dominates those creative products and it will continue to dominate that creative product niche. And so much to the point of when someone has that idea of, oh, I'm looking for something unique, they're going to go to Etsy. Or if you want to sell something unique, you're going to go to Etsy. So that kind of creates a flywheel where there's a, a network effect where you start attracting more buyers and more sellers because you're kind of the only game in town. Um, so, so that's, uh, so there's that. Um, and then also I, like I mentioned earlier, I just think it's a good source of leverage for an independent seller because it broadens your market, um, geographically as opposed to locally. Do they operate internationally or is it just us? No. So they do operate internationally and some developed European countries. So I think Germany and France is, uh, one of the two of the ones I know off the top of my head. Um, so it's mostly the U S and, um, and some parts of Europe. Okay. What are, and I assume their big competitors are like Shopify. Are there any other ones? Amazon, I guess. Uh, so Amazon tried to do something similar. Um, and this is one of the reasons I like Etsy as well. So Amazon had a similar segment called Amazon handmade, but, um, it, it failed and it didn't work. And it was because, you know, Amazon's infrastructure is not made for unique creative goods. Amazon's infrastructure and the way their business profits is made for, selling lar- large units, like 10,000 units of the same thing, like kind of commodity products. So it just wasn't a natural fit. So I think that's one of the reasons I, I still like Etsy and I continue to like Etsy. And what, uh, you know, Shopify kind of fits into there. I know that's one of the popular uh, companies that everyone knows about. And they have something called the Shop app, uh, which I think kind of tries to bring something maybe similar to Etsy. Do you see that as a threat at all from the competition? And then how does eBay fit in as well? Yeah, so eBay uh, eBay is interesting. I, I think eBay still kind of goes for the idea of an auction website. Um, and I, it's not growing or it doesn't have the adoption. And it's near, the, I don't want to say it's near the end of its life. It's still a good business. But Etsy, if you look at the financials, it's still emerging. It's still growing. It's still being adopted. It's still winning. And Amazon, I think their specialty is kind of auction. So if you want something, if you want someone to bid on your product and it's a little bit of everything. And I remember um, when I'm a little bit older than you guys, but I remember when Amazon emerged and when it was like kind of the new thing, when it was the Etsy of its day, if you will. But I think it's near mid-life cycle or coming near the end. Um, so that's auctions. And then they sell a little bit of everything, but it doesn't have that specialization. Uh, Shopify, the way I understand Shopify, 
um, where it's value add and someone helped me appreciate this and I thought about it and this is why I like it too, is it's kind of the anti Amazon where if you have a product that you need it branded and you're saying my product is special, I, I want to go through Shopify because Amazon's gotten to the point where the fees you just for getting the privilege or the luxury to sell on Amazon, they take a huge portion of fees. So if you don't have, I worked a little bit with a small business um, and they just, it wasn't realistic for them to sell on Amazon because Amazon's going to take so many, so much fees. You need to be doing a certain amount of volume for it to even be a worthwhile channel. Shopify's model is a little bit more made from my understanding. It's a little bit more win-win where they're taking uh, a little you know, percentage based on uh, your sales. And it's not as uh, in- kind of intrusive and dominating as Amazon. So if you, you've got the ability to simply set up your, your e-commerce website and it's made so anyone can do it. And I think they're charging a, a little bit more fair of a rate in, in that regard. Okay. Do you think that, I mean, obviously uh, the, the pandemic kind of accelerated the e-commerce adoption because so many people were forced to buy stuff uh, online. Do you think that that might be temporary and there could be some sort of like reversion, like maybe people go back to brick and mortar as uh, stuff opens back up? Or do you think this is more just an acceleration? Yeah. So one of the, my major takeaways from uh, COVID was that the businesses that were winning um, accelerated and even more so than we would have thought because they were already well positioned. So for to answer your question, I think it's more long term. And I'll give you an example of that. And this is why it surprised me. Um, there's, a, there's a business called Carvana and there's a business called Vroom. And you know, I'm I'm a millennial. I like to buy stuff online, et cetera, et cetera. That's no surprise. But I would have never thought people would have liked to buy cars online. And the fact that these businesses came out and they're succeeding and that people are buying cars online, besides a house, a car is one of the most biggest purchases you can have. And for people to feel comfortable buying a car online, I was surprised. So if that tells me anything, I think that that's a sign that e-commerce is here to stay. And it's going to be a major way of transacting and doing business in the future. Because if someone can find uh, comfort in buying a $15,000, $20,000 purchase that's going to be financed and having that transaction be fully online and not going to the dealership to test drive the car and do all these things. Um, that I think that's a major sign that we're going to be doing business online, um, maybe indefinitely, or at least it will be trending upward in the future. Okay. And, is, oh God. I was going to say that's uh I think for a lot of people, there's like that hurdle of like, you've been thinking about buying it, but you typically shop in person. And I think the, that COVID kind of forced people to get over that hurdle. And then once you have one successful experience shopping online, then you feel a little more comfortable. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe that just pushed a lot of people over the hurdle. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was like, even if you were exactly, even if you weren't shopping online, 
it was the best alternative to your normal schedule. And then think about, and then someone else framed it this way. Um, think about the habits that you develop, like once you start doing it, because we were in lockdown for maybe like three to six months. So if you started shopping online you, you're, and you like it and it's a good transaction and you feel comfortable with it, you're most likely going to keep making transactions online, I would imagine. Right. Okay. And then one concern that I've read about with uh, Etsy is that, you know, they got maybe an artificial bump from COVID due to the masks. Now we yeah. can see that general e-commerce tailwind, but there were a lot of mask sellers um, on Etsy, you know, the handmade ones, all that stuff. Uh, how do you think that impacts the business in the long term? Does that affect, um, is it just, you know, something that was happening in 2020? You know, how, how, how big of a part of the business is it? Yeah. So, um, so I don't have the exact numbers, but they broke it out. They do break it out in their reporting. I, I, I remember the major takeaways from everything's I read, everything I read, but not maybe the exact numbers. So I was comfortable with it because they broke it out um, in their numbers. And from my opinion, the growth rate was still attractive, even when you exclude the mass. Now, yeah. if, even if we look at the growth rate before the mass sub 2020, they were growing north of 30%. So that's revenue and free cash flow, which in my opinion is very attractive. Um, so, I, so I'm very comfortable with the mass sales. And then if I, I look at it this way. Let's say you discover Etsy from buying a mask and you stick around um, because now you discovered it. So I think I think it's still a net win and it's more, more business that they're going to do. So even if... Um, so even if it was, so even let's say it's not going to level out to 80% and it comes back to 30 to 40% range, I'm still very comfortable with that. Right, right. And then you mentioned in your write-up that there, you know, there's significant operating leverage embedded into this business. Um, how can they increase their margins over time? What are the, you know, opportunities ahead of them to, you know, increase that operating leverage? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so the, uh, I, I know you guys are on Twitter and I know a lot of people on Twitter, uh, follow Naval. He's very popular. And uh, Naval has a saying, uh, one of the things he kind of talks about are that uh, computers and coding and uh, anything digital gives you massive leverage because it just produces uh, so much work for you. Um, and you have to think about this in a kind of common sense way is that it doesn't each additional business or besides the marketing spend, Etsy is spending a little bit on marketing. Each additional customer does not cost you that much, right? So it's a platform and it's going to grow because of its popularity. And any digital-based business or like software, the reason people like software is because it's very profitable. So when you get those high gross margins, that's usually a good sign of operating leverage. So when you see gross margins um, in the 70 percentile, 70 percent range or higher, not even that, it's it's still a really good business to run, right? And you don't need a lot of infrastructure to run a business like Etsy because everything's being stored digitally. So the reason I like the operating leverage is because expenses are not going to keep up with revenue. So the revenue is going to grow and then the bottom line is going to grow faster because everything's digital. It's not costing you that much for each uh, additional customer, like each incremental customer 
you don't have to spend a lot of money because it's all online. So it's the same thing with software. It's the same thing with like a, another fintech company I'm seeing. And if you look at um, if you look at the EBITDA margins or EBIT margins, whatever you prefer, um, over the last few years for Etsy, they've consistently been trending upward, and and I believe that's due to that operating leverage. Um, you know, I'm mentioning. So I, it's one of the things that I kind of like to look for um, and better understand. Do you think they can raise the take rate over time? Uh, like you said, it's they almost get what, like 17% on transactions? Yeah. So personally, I think uh, I don't want to see them raise the take rate anymore. Um, I think it's pretty, I think 17% is pretty steep yeah. personally. Um, and I'm, I'm starting to look at Fiverr a little bit. And I think Fiverr's somewhere in the same neighborhood. Um, so I think I, I'd be careful with raising it too much because then that invites room for disruption or for someone to do something else. So I think just along alone, the volume, the more volume they could get alone, I, I would be happy with that. I, I personally don't want to see them raise the take rate anymore. Okay. And are there uh, any other growth opportunities for them that they've maybe highlighted or any you think that they can go after? Because I guess another, you know, concern, maybe looking at it from the outside for someone that's not an expert on the business, you kind of look and you say, all right, the marketplace for arts and crafts and maybe individual handmade goods, um, it's not a giant market. Is that, you know, are there any other future growth opportunities for them or is it just in this, you know, one marketplace? Uh, so we, uh, we saw an acquisition of Reverb, which is a yeah. marketplace for, uh, so they bought a company called Reverb, which in Reverb is a marketplace for, I think, uh, instruments. So like guitars and stuff like that. And, um, so, I mean, it, I think they may look into other niche marketplaces. I don't know how many of them there are out there. But I think uh, Josh Silverman, the CEO, I kind of like him. I think he's really proved himself, even though he's not like a founder, like we like typically like to see. Um, and I think he's smart. And I think I, 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 um, I'll think about what you're saying a little bit more, I think. But I think there is a significant marketplace for what Etsy provides, even though you would think not that many people want to create stuff that category is fairly broad. So when, every time I go on there, there's everything from t-shirts, jewelry, uh, one, one uh, thing they can make animated pictures of yourself. So I think there's so many creative things people may not even know they want. I, I think it's fairly broad personally, but um, we'll see if there's more marketplaces out there. But um, I, I don't know. I, I think if you look at the consecutive revenue growth, it's pretty, it's been pretty promising. That's one of the things uh, I, I like about it. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Should we talk Ferrari? Yeah, Move next on? up. Okay, the exciting, uh, the glamorous. Company. Yeah, I I pitched <laughs> I pitched Ferrari um, internally. Uh, yeah, at the, or at, at the Motley Fool this yeah. summer. Yeah. Um, and so we have some convincing to do with Brett because Brett isn't as sold as. Either Ari or I. So why don't you just kind of talk about the basic thesis behind Ferrari? What is it for you? Uh, here's the basic the uh, basic thesis on Ferrari for me. And uh, so I will say this: a lot of people aren't crazy about this company. And uh, when I pitched it, it was not, uh, in my opinion, it was not particularly received well. But I have a reason why, and we can talk through that. Um, here's my thesis on Ferrari: is that 
even though we think about in finance or whatever theory you're taught, we we are taught businesses, you, they are priced and valued to last forever indefinitely. The the price that is calculated of a business is based on cash flows going out into the future forever. But the truth behind capitalism, and even if we look in the S&P 500, the average life of a business is maybe 10 to 15 years. Right. So even though the S&P 500 has company, 500 companies in there that are all market weighted or weighted to some degree, companies are coming in and out of that index continuously because they don't meet certain uh, requirements or maybe they go bankrupt. Right. Look at Kodak. Look at Sears. Look at all these great companies that aren't what they were before. Look at um, uh you know, there's really rare, there's really only a few enduring companies. Now, let's look at Ferrari. Obviously, we don't need to go into too much detail. It's simple. Ferrari makes luxury performance vehicles and they have a brand um, and their heritage is in racing. And they use the technology from racing. I'm, I'm actually a Formula One nerd a little bit. It's one of my, my favorite sports to watch. So I, I think I understand this pretty well. And they use that technology and they put it in the cars. Right. Ferrari started Enzo Ferrari. He was a found, founder-led business uh, in the 50s or 60s. Guy loves racing started this company and this company has lasted a long time, right? So this is an enduring brand. It goes back to the 1960s. There will always be high net worth individuals who have discretionary income and who have hobbies and that like these things and that will spend $250,000 on a car. I don't, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And if you don't believe me, let's just look back at the last 50 years. Now, when I pitched at uh, when I pitched Ferrari at the full, it wasn't well received. And this is why our culture, our company, we like innovative, high growth companies. Most of our picks are going to have some level of high revenue growth and some level of innovation. And that's fine for a huge returns over a short period of time, right? So you're going to get that multi-bagger or whatever, but Ferrari is the type of business where I see it gives you maybe a 10 to 12% return over a lifetime or over a very long period of time. So maybe you're not going to get, in my opinion, you're maybe you're not going to get the 20 or 30% return over five years, which our culture and our stock picks are based on. But this is an enduring business that maybe, maybe you guys, if you're young and you're just, your whole goal is capital appreciation, it's not going to be the one you necessarily go for. But this is, in my opinion, this is going to be an enduring brand that's going to be around for a long time. And maybe it's not going to have high growth because as a luxury brand, you can only make a few cars, but the money it prints is going to be high return on capital, right? When you can sell a car for $250,000, a million dollars, $2 million, just, and you have people literally waiting to buy a car um, to be in this exclusive club, I think that's an enduring business that's going to be around for for decades. Um, so that's kind of way uh, that's kind of the way I see Ferrari. Okay, that's no, that's a great overview. Ryan has been making the same points to me, but uh, 
are there any businesses that can copy their model at all? Because when you, you know, when the thesis is the permanence, uh, you kind of think, all right, that moat uh, or competitive advantage has to be really strong. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I think like, well, someone said to me, I was like, when I was saying, you know, Ferrari has this moat, Ferrari has this moat. And he's like, oh, well, what about Lamborghini and yeah. Aston Martin and all these other? Yes, there's there's lots of other luxury vehicles. But think about this. If you're if you have the net worth or discretionary income to even consider to be able to afford a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or Aston Martin or whatever car it is. At that point, you're not buying it because you think it's affordable. You're buying it because that brand or something that about that culture resonates with you, or you want to be a part of that club and you want to have that luxury to be a part of it, right? So I, I guarantee you, if we talk to 50 supercar owners, I, rare, I bet rarely any of them are going to say, oh, well, I went with the Ferrari because the Lambo is too expensive. They're going to say they're going to say, oh, no, I like the way Ferraris looks or I, I like the this model they had or the engine does this or or um, or I like the brand or, or or F1. They've had the most dominant F1 team in history. Like, I think all of those things tied together kind of um, indicate, you know, what Ferrari is. And I think because a lot of people uh, aren't necessarily high net worth individuals. I think it's hard for them to understand or maybe yet. Right. I hope we all get there. One day, one day, one day. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think maybe yet it's hard for them to understand why someone would spend $250,000 on a, um, you know, on a vehicle like that. Right. And what, how important is the club aspect where it's kind of like, all right, well, all the, I guess you call it the billionaires club or the center millionaires club all are with Ferrari currently where, you know, one person could leave and they're like, all right, I'm going to buy some Lamborghini or something like that. But you're kind of left out of the club where it's almost, uh, you know, you want to all be a part of this Ferrari team almost. Is that part of the thesis or? So I think it's uh, I think it's like a collection of people that are passionate about the brand and like those cars. So my um, my wife's a consultant and she's start, she's working with a business that restores uh, old classic cars. So maybe not they don't necessarily work with the newer ones, but they have some Ferraris like from the 60s and 70s. And um, these are really expensive cars and the labor that goes into it is pretty expensive. And that's and it's like you're saying it's it's a club aspect and they just like the way the vehicles look and to collect them so it's like a little bit of collect ha having a collector's item you can think about it that way and i think as long as they keep the brand and don't deter people i'm not sure i, I think if one person or a few people leave i don't think it necessarily hurts the brand but if they keep the prestige behind it, I think it'll, it'll last. Right. So like the, the, you would never want to discount a product like that or put a Ferrari or a new Ferrari on sale or right. something like that. I think those are the type of things that could hurt, you know, hurt the brand. Right. Let's say they, you, like, I would never want to see a Ferrari sold for like $50,000. Right. It just doesn't make sense. Um, and one of my, coworkers was their their argument was well what about tesla 
And I don't think Tesla is in the same range. I don't view Tesla as a competitor, even though they have a performance car, there's still a luxury aspect of, of to Ferrari and they only operate um, in that niche. Right. So Tesla, they're, they're a little bit all over the place. So I think the entry level Tesla car is about like 30,000. So that's, that's pretty accessible for most middle class Americans where uh, 250,000, a million is not accessible for most individuals. Uh, so I think, you know, as long as they kind of keep the price point high, keep delivering the quality, um, you know, I, I, and I think people will stay and maybe not, you know, leave the club, if you will. Right. And yeah. the, with the luxury good, um, with that comparison, you know, with the uprise of some of these electric vehicle companies, if everyone starts having the car, well, then it's not a luxury good anymore. So it's kind of like that catch point too. Right. All right. Exactly. Well, I, you don't have to do any convincing for me, but I will try to do, uh, I'll try to poke some holes and it's kind of, since I like Ferrari, it's a lot of the questions that I'm kind of asking myself. And so I guess to start the electric vehicle market. So uh, let's say that EVs are kind of normalized. That becomes a norm in the future. Do you think yeah. that some of these gas powered vehicle, because part of a big part of the thesis is that these, these cars carry their value over time. Um, like the classic Ferraris and stuff like that. So do you think that would like, uh, kind of fall apart in an EV future if a lot of these are sort of the gas powered uh, classic cars? So, so this is a, so like, this is a really good question. And that's one I've given more thought to. And when I first uh, pitched this, I I really wasn't prepared for this question, but I, I said, I've since given it thought and um, this is the way I think about it. Right. So I, I do think we are going to go into the future where there's going to be electric vehicles. I see that trend happening. Um, I think it will continue to happen. Now the Ferrari brand it, it is somewhat built on like V8 engines and revving engines and loud sounds and performance and all those things. So that, that is a, I think that is a very real risk, but I do believe part of the brand is built on cutting edge performance, no matter what that performance is. And before it was got in the fifties and sixties, it was gasoline powered engines. And we're going into an era where I think we're going to see that transition. And I do believe Ferrari will make that transition. Now, if we look at Formula One racing, I know not, not a lot of Americans follow this, but Formula One racing has converted to hybrid engines. So, so portion, uh, so a portion of, you know, it's part gas, part electric. So they're already starting to make that transition in what's considered world-class uh, car racing. And I think that transition is going to continue in racing. And I think it'll continue um, for their products themselves. They, uh, their last supercar was a hybrid. And I do believe uh, as they're, now I don't know how quickly this will happen, but I do believe as we go into the future, I think they'll make that transition into electric vehicles. And it may be, it may be tough for some of the boomers that are associate the brand with 
with gasoline engines and revving and all that stuff. But if they can win the high net worth people that will be millennials and sell them on here's, you know, we still have the same performance or we still have high quality performance. You're getting the brand, the luxury. I think they'll be able to transition. It is a risk, but I think they'll do it. I think they've already started to do it. I think it'll happen slowly though. What about you said that, I mean, a lot of the heritage is tied to racing, right? From Enzo's kind of roots to even now with Formula One. Do you think there's any risk that uh, if they become less of a dominant player in race, I think Mercedes has won a few of the big tournaments over the last year or the last years. Um, Does that tarnish the brand at all? That's a good one. Uh, That's a really good question. And it's, it's tough because uh, right now Mercedes is the dominant brand um and racing and they've been consecutively winning and um ferrari has uh good drivers but their their technology is in a weird period and and the way formula one works is it's a combination it's not just so it's like budgets how big is your company how 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 good of the technology can you afford to put in the car uh can you hire the best drivers and ferrari has a pretty large budget and they haven't been winning and they're in a little bit of a transition period, but I think I think they'll eventually get it together and, and come back to maybe win or at least start placing in the second or third realm. Um, it doesn't look like their racing has affected the sales of the business personally. I think the brand, I think people still like the brand regardless whether they're one or two or one, two or three. I think the brand is still enduring. And I think as long as the technology is there and it's competitive, um, I think they'll still uh, now racing heads. Now, if you're pure, just racing, I think a lot of people that purely like racing are a little disappointed with Ferrari as a brand um, because Ferrari would be like, the equivalent would be like what the new England Patriots have been for the, to football over the last decade. That's kind of what Ferrari is to racing. Um, but I think the brand will still do well, even if they're not necessarily coming in first every year. Right. It's kind of like Yankees. They can still sell hats. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, like you're not people, you know, people are still going to support the Yankees and, and I love the Yankees, even if they're not necessarily uh, winning every year. Right. Right. Okay. The last question we have with Ferrari, um, Another thing that, you know, people that get concerned about the business is uh, pricing power. So do you think there's any cap to pricing power and can they go from like $2 million to, you know, $5 million selling a car? This is the, uh, it kind of, you know, everyone talks about the permanence of the business and it's like, well, they can always raise prices because people like the prestige and they don't mind paying more because they think the car is more valuable. But I guess is uh, to touch on Brett's question, do you think there's any cap to that? Do you think that stops at some point? Uh, I think, I think if they if they do it modestly, I think there's no stop. Like if they do it in a way to keep up with inflation, um, maybe like three percent, four percent. I think it's very realistic, and I think they can keep doing it. Now, when we look at the range of the price of their vehicles, some of the vehicles the vehicles range from about like. 
250,000 to up to like 2 million or a million per vehicle. But the the cars that are selling for 2 and 1 million are very rare or it's like a limited edition or something like that. So they're selling it on scarcity or something to that degree. So when you think about that when you're when you're ranging your vehicles in that price point, you've got a lot of flexibility. And let's say, let's say, oh, I mean, they could say we're going to make only two of these vehicles ever, right? Like think about the price you could get for you're only making two of these vehicles or even like, let's say they said we're only going to make 7,000 Ferraris per year for the rest of time or the vehicles, right? So like, I think you've got a lot of flexibility there. So I think as long as the pricing power is reasonable, um, and high net worth people can still afford it. I think it's I think it's very possible. Now compare that to iPhone, right? iPhone or Apple is like a cool brand, but it's weird because it's not soup at the super high end of the market where you just can't afford it. Most people have iPhones and I, I Apple's been kind of exercising their pricing power, but those phones are going up to like a thousand. 1100 1200 I don't know if I, I think that's going to price a lot of people out of the market and that's like getting that's literally almost a com, the price of a com, some computers so I think for the end of the market they're playing in I think it's very likely if their reasonable price increases they can keep going on okay yeah, that was a good pitch yeah let's uh to wrap up questions I'll go first uh, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I thought about this question. I don't have a saying, but right now the way I feel is I don't, and this is one of the reasons I can still like Ferrari and still like a company like Etsy is because I don't want to pigeonhole myself into saying I specialize in the healthcare tech stocks and this is all I look at, or I specialize in high growth. Uh, so right now I have certain things I like and I kind of play, um, I think unless you're managing money or you told your clients you're going to do something specific, I think um, you should be willing to look at different types of businesses um, and be comfortable because right now I like SaaS businesses. I like software businesses just like the next person, but we got to question some of the valuations um, and you just have to be careful. And I think there's a lot of great businesses that may be not uh, appealing or quote unquote sexy on the surface, but are really great businesses uh, when you put peel back the layers. So I think um, just not pigeonholing yourself where I see some folks saying I, I specialize in this or I only look at these type of companies. Right. I, I disagree with that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes you got to stick with what you know, but if you're just going to take out half the market for no reason, well, you're just limiting the amount of investments you have out there. But uh, last question we always ask is what's one piece of advice you'd have for anyone considering a career in investing? Um, I would say do a combination of practice and theory and start, if you're uncomfortable investing your own money, start with a little bit and gradually grow that. And the amazing thing about this business is that the best investors in the world are writing, they're sharing information, they're literally telling you what they're doing. And you can um, accelerate your learning so much by just understanding what someone else is doing and um, copying that. 
And um, I think a combination of practice and reading, learning about theory and what other investors are doing is a, a great combination of things to do for someone looking to advance and investing and improve every day. Okay. All right. I think that answers all our questions. Uh, thank you for coming on. Where can people find you? Uh, uh, you <laughs> yeah, you can find me on Twitter right now uh, at Ari underscore invest, A-U-R-I underscore invest. Um, you know, I see a lot of people at Substacks and blogs. I need to figure out if I'm going to do something with that or I if I'll have time. money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that, is that what it is? You can charge like a subscription? Yeah. You, you, can. Can, start, you can charge. Well, most of them are free, I guess, for investors. But yeah, yeah. you can charge 10 bucks a month, you know, very scalable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like you, you got to have a lot of people that want to come read your stuff. So, I mean, we'll see. Uh, and then I, I don't know if I still want to take, if I do try to study for CFA again, I probably won't have time for that, but, um, but yeah, Ari underscore investing, I'll share my thoughts, uh, research things I find interesting. Um, but thank you so much for having me on guys. Best of luck with everything you're doing. All right. Awesome. There it goes. Thanks. Good Ari. luck to you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good one guys. Bye-bye. Welcome back in. Thanks again to Ari Hughes for coming on the show. Uh, if you were listening to the first part, I blanked on the name of what Vlad Tenev looked like. Uh, it's John Wick or Kylo Ren. I thought he looked identical to both. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, so... Well, he is an action hero. Sorry, I've just been thinking about that. His suit His time. suit didn't... His suit was so ill-fitting. It was just... I don't <laughs> know. It looked like it was like a, something from a bar mitzvah. He could really go without the middle part. But, um, okay. Hot water... I think I only have two. Yeah, I only have two. I have another one in my mind, but uh, All right. I didn't write Go it ahead. down. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, financial goals are in hot water. This week, someone who works in San Francisco, I'm not going to say who, said $10 million is not enough to retire unless you're about to die. I, I, That's weird. That seems like you maybe grew up in San Francisco your whole Time, but $10 million is a lot of money. San Francisco didn't get expensive until like two decades, last two decades, but yeah. What what would be the right amount of money for you to retire retire right now? Right now? Quit this? (laughs) This. I don't know. I like this, so I'd do this for, not for free. All right, let's say you weren't doing this. Weren't doing this? And I just had a regular office job? Yeah, what's the right Mm -hmm. number? Because I've seen Where I live on myself? Well, assuming I can get that, uh, you know... 30% 30% IRR. No, just assuming a 10% IRR or something like that. Yeah. I probably need like 1.5 million, something yeah. like that. How in what world is 10 million not enough? Uh, yeah. it's lifestyle creep. Got got to stop that lifestyle creep. Yeah. Okay, Boeing's in hot water. A huge piece of a plane engine fell off a uh, mid-flight. It was a 777 uh, plane. Yeah, the flight was from Denver to Honolulu. I'm sure people saw pictures of this. Yeah. Uh, Boeing grounded some of that fleet or some of those planes. I think it was like a few dozen planes. Um, and I believe the guy tried to sell it on eBay. Uh, the uh, engine one part the instantly after. Would you do the same thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why not? You don't need it. <laughs> uh, yeah. People might want it. That's kind of a tough item to ship though. <laughs> Tough shipping. Uh, UPS has it. They got it. Yeah, Amazon right. can do anything. Uh, those were the only two I had. Yeah, Boeing. Tough. Tough look. Is only, that only okay. company that makes planes in the U.S.? We used to say it's the easiest company to own because they were, you know, the only company, a monopoly almost. Yeah. Um, well, in the U.S., sure, but uh, do is it the hardest company to own right now for the long term? Mm-hmm. Because there's so many like newsy things that could really damage yeah. it. Yeah, it's true. 
I wouldn't own it, but Brad gave a good pitch last week or two weeks ago. So, yeah. uh, I, don't know. I mean, it's I mean, it's, it's got to be own. a hell of it's got to be a hell of a lot harder to own right now. Yeah, and right. the sentiment is just terrible. Okay, what do you have? Uh, I was gonna have that. So I have two. First one, Ackman haters are in hot water because Pershing Square was up seventy percent in twenty twenty. Remember everyone making fun of him in March? Well, he really I mean, he's not showing them because he doesn't know who they are. Yeah. But yeah. I've come around to Bill. I like Bill. Yeah, he's good. He's good. I, well, hope, I hope he hears that. <laughs> yeah, he's obviously sure he's listening. listening. Uh he's I mean, he's got a pretty good life, done well. Uh, yeah. but the other one is those videos on FinTalk or the, you know, oh, the, gosh. they're getting worse and worse by the day. So there was this one that looked totally, most of them it's like a kid our age that is spending 50 bucks and is like, you know, they're learning, they're making some mistakes like we all do. But this one was a, a lady probably, like, I don't know where they were, but they were like, we're selling our house and oh, we're yeah. buying stock. And they're going to rent during this time. And it was like a $350,000 house. And they're like, all right, we're going to rent for a year. And then once we get a million bucks, we're going to go back and buy a house. It's, uh, uh, can I buy a put option on them? But the, <laughs> no, there was I hope they don't one. do bad. I hope they don't do bad. But uh, that's worrying. I mean, how weird can this get? I mean, what does another stimulus do to this too? Like yeah. this, that might just throw some, just tons of gasoline on this fire. Yeah, there was another one where the guy... I was like, I just quit my job going all in on Bitcoin. I was like, you couldn't have gone all in on Bitcoin while keeping your job? Like, why'd you have to quit your job? Uh, it, uh, I don't yeah, know, those man. are concerning. I've seen a lot of those recently. But I will say, FinTwit is also getting played because some of those are like fake videos and FinTwit yeah. doesn't know it. That's true. You always got to take them with a grain of salt. Some of them make them up. And they're doing it as humor, like sarcastically, and FinTwit doesn't know it. So, you know. It could Keep be working. We could be the one. These might be sarcastic. Yeah, we could be the ones getting played. But I just like how they're like, we're selling our house to buy stock. Not even stocks. Stock. Just stock. One. They're buying stock. They're buying. They're just stocking. one stock. I wonder what stock that's going to be. They're stocking shelves. Okay. Um. What else? No. Do you have any more hot water? No. Buy sell hold. The theme this week is coming companies we used to own. So this Ooh. was in like our old, what was it called? Hypothetical capital. CCM fund. Portfolio. We didn't want to call it hypothetical, but it, it was, was it was hypothetical. But, um, our personal holdings. All right. So the comp, we used to own all these Square, Roku, and MongoDB. If you had to go back today and pick, uh, you know, buy, sell, hold. Buy, each of sell, those. hold right now. Gosh, all those valuations are insane. <laughs> all of them are insane. We might have some Roku and Square, Square shareholders. Definitely. So. <laughs> well, if you're, I mean, if you. Look, trigger warning. <laughs> yeah, now if you are holding Square and Roku right now, I'll, I'll power two. You probably ten bagged your holdings. We honestly, and if you hold, been doing the same, if maybe. it was our yeah, maybe, maybe, never say never. Not investment advice, but Square. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're done phenomenally well with your holdings. You don't want to take that tax loss. I mean, maybe it's overvalued right now. You sure you're fine? You know, whatever. Yeah. You might get a thirty percent haircut. You might not. But I'd probably say Square cash up's a beast. Um, you'd buy Square or you? But yeah, that'd probably be my, out of these three. I wouldn't touch all three just on evaluation concerns, but probably Square, then Roku, then MongoDB. MongoDB's valuation's kind of insane. I think they could get disrupted, but there's a lot of good arguments for the business. Roku, also, the business has a clear path to success over the next you know five years or so. Yeah. But again, it trades at what, 40 times sales now? 
Yeah, I remember looking at it. What margins aren't that good? Three times sales. Four, four. Don't, four times sales? don't. Yeah, yeah. We were looking at four in between four and five. Back when that was, we were like, because eh. that we margins we might have overpaid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean those gross margins aren't that great. I'll just say it again. Like their gross margins, I think, are usually in between forty and fifty percent because they subsidize that hardware, the hardware sales. Yeah, and those won't go away. They'll become a smaller part, but still, I mean. Yeah, I I think I'd probably be buying Roku. It's a business that I loved. Uh, it's always hard to depart from the businesses you like do really well on, and then you become emotionally attached, especially if you're vocal about it. Yes, because then you feel like that's your company. You were the one that was like the mm-hmm. originator of that idea. Not that I was. Beth Kendig was probably on it earlier than me, but I don't know. We it gets harder to sell, but I think. Roku might be number one for me there. Square number two. MongoDB I don't understand well enough, so it's probably yeah, number three. Yeah, I can't complain about that. The uh, my number one emotional attachment though has got to be Stitch Fix though. That's got to be <sighs> my rough. number one. That's rough. All right. Uh, anecdotal evidence this week. Um, gosh, I have two. Oh, I want to talk about the Spotify streaming event. Uh, ooh, do we want to just save that for next week? Kind of get a because there was like ten things announced. Hmm. Or not. I'll just have one question. One, okay, okay. What do you think the labels think when they watch stuff like this? Because shareholders okay. are always getting optimistic. Yeah. If you're a label and you're watching this. Well, on the one you hand, think? you're thinking, all right, we're going to have to spend a little bit more money on advertising in that marketplace. Um, we're getting a little bit detached from the artist. But on the other hand, they announced they're going to 80 new markets with over 500 million current internet users and probably a billion internet users over the time being. So, I mean... They're going to be continue paying out more and more to the labels each year. Yeah. I think it's kind of just eh, give and take, you know, bittersweet. Yeah, I don't think it's any changed. something they didn't know about. Nope. Um, another anecdotal evidence for me, uh, this probably could have gone in current state of FinTwit, but I saw someone mention that there's no points for originality in investing. I kind of thought that it's was true. powerful. Do you think – do you spend too much time trying to find businesses that are underfollowed? Because I find myself doing it all the time. Yeah, underfollowed is helpful because it means that uh, potentially less, less ineff- more inefficient. Uh, but yeah, you can get caught in the trap. Like everyone owns this. We don't like it. I think we had some like troll on our uh, fund thing. Oh, yeah. Sent us yeah. a saying, if you're listening, cookie cutter portfolio or whatever. I know. Uh, that sent us through a message. Didn't even say who they were. <laughs> We've been getting flamed on the website, so if you feel free if you're to a troll, add yeah, some hate mail, just throw I, them in there. I don't know what trolls are looking to hate mail on some fun that no one even knows about, but you guys have found it, and uh, all right, thanks for the <laughs> thanks for the criticisms. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, what what do you, what do you have? Okay, so uh, this could have been state of into it as well, but I did a poll on Shopbox versus Dropbox. Or Shop, you said Shopbox. Shopbox. Ooh. Shopify. Well, you can so, Shopify. You can tell it when I liked Shopify versus Dropbox. Seventy-six percent of people liked uh, Shopify over the next five years. Are you surprised? I was. Yeah. I was a little surprised. I know people like it. Uh, was I being too pessimistic on Shopify though? I was about to comment rip to your mentions when you put that out there because. You, you've been vocal against Shopify for a while. Now, granted, they had a big-time boost from COVID. Um, but, yeah, yeah they're, I mean... They're I was vocal against Shopify at 1,000, so listen, the, I've been wrong so far. Everyone loves that business. There is a ton to love, and I think Toby is incredible. I think that, yeah, it's got a bright future. 
but it is so hard to rationalize the price. Uh, yeah. I whereas Dropbox does trade at fair value, um, in our opinion. And then, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously a little more optimistic for Dropbox. It might not grow as fast, but it's fairly valued. Yeah. Sorry, sorry for the Shopify shareholders out there because yeah. you've been right, we've been wrong. So I hope, I hope, look, I hope both do well. I hope we're wrong because. I don't also, most money. of like the really, really good investors that we know, uh, a lot of them love Shopify. So yeah, like, yeah respect I, it. I hope I hope I'm wrong. I'm not shorted. So oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, is that all? Well, uh, I guess another last. Let's wrap things up. Last one. Um, there's a lot of chatter out there about Facebook being cheap. Something we've tossed around. You know, Facebook people being oh, stock is cheap. Stock is cheap. Yeah. yeah. But so I. You see that, you're thinking, all right, well, they're losing a little bit of the market in the United States. You can kind of see that anecdotally, but they got that lock-in globally. Um, a lot of countries are using them. You know, people have all the the pictures. There's a lot of give and take with Facebook. It's really controversial name right now. But then, you know, you see the positives, the Instagram, the VR stuff, blah, blah, blah. And then I see articles, though, from the Financial Times that read, like, a Facebook manager said that it made revenue that it should not have gotten. And this is from overstating eyeballs on ads. I mean, how do you weigh this? Like, don't you, when I see that, I just think, all right, Facebook's a black box. Have they been inflating, you know, those things? There is. I mean, here's the discrepancy is the most engaged audience is international and the most engaged users are probably on WhatsApp or Instagram. And they haven't necessarily diluted Instagram too much yet, but... You can't monetize WhatsApp. They tried. True, true. And so now you've got – you're just monetizing the crap out of a base that's dwindling away. And so yeah. maybe there is – And what if, they're, what if they're inflating it? What if they are? Like I know yeah. that – you know the thing where you'd scroll by one second and you'd see the ad? You'd see it, quote unquote, and it counts as a view? I don't yeah. know. I just can't get around that. I mean I think that's total risk. But don't you think business. But, these businesses would know if their marketing was super ineffective? Like – Nah. They, there's no way they'd get that much ad that spend much, if they yeah. weren't getting like that's some true. reward from it. Well, that's the truth. Yeah, I know, but there's plenty of people alleging this. So who knows? I don't know. It feels, it feels like Microsoft in 2010. No, 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 no. That was trading at ten times earnings. That was trading serious? at ten times earnings. Yeah. This string at 2020. No. 20? I thought it was cheaper than 20. Facebook? I believe it's a 20. 17 or 18. Let me check right now. Uh, But, yeah, it's definitely not as cheap. cheap. It's not as cheap as Microsoft in 2010. Oh, EVD uh, is 17. Never mind. Never mind. It's cheap. It's a little lower. It's a little lower. And it just feels like sometimes... I mean, this is one of those companies that's really in the news a lot. So, sometimes the news can weigh on it. And if, Mm -hmm. if you think the fundamentals are strong going forward, then maybe tune it out. Yeah, I just gosh, I don't know. But what news versus noise is honestly, tough here. I've been look, I've been hesitant on uh, Facebook, not bearish or anything, but just hesitant. Uh, I don't know what to think about it. Yeah, it's almost in my too hard box. <laughs> the the product is super easy to understand, but it's still almost in the too hard. No, yeah, the product, whatever. That's not in the too hard pile, but just all the factors going into their future growth. It's it's hard to analyze. Okay. Well, I think that's going to do it. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, quick reminder, we're general partners at Arch Capital, uh, and we're not financial advisors, so anything we say or discuss is not formal advice or recommendation. Um, feel free to reach out to us, Twitter, at Chit Chat Money. 
Uh, we've been getting a lot of show recommendations. So we really appreciate those. And uh, I think we also have email, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out through that. Thank you, yeah. guys. We'll see you next week. Thank you.